morning, everyone. I invite you to take out your Bibles, and we'll be reading in Genesis uh, chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, you didn't bring one today, please raise your hand, and one of our frontline teams would be happy to share with you a, a Bible. And if you don't uh, own one at home and you'd like to read and explore it more, please take one of these Bibles home. It'll be our gift to you. So let's open up, um, and I'll be starting in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 12. This is one of the, I'm going to be reading one of the greatest um, the greatest verses in the Old Testament, the greatest promises in the Old Testament or in the entire Bible this morning. It's quite exciting to me. Listen to this. Um, starting in verse 1, Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward Negeb. This is the word of God to us. Praise be to God. Well, we are into a series here at Church of the City called What is Church? And so if we lost some of you because this is your first time gathering with the church community, uh, our apologies. There are some inside jokes there. Uh, for those of us that get it, it makes a little bit of sense, but some of us, we might have missed it. But when many of us think about the experience of, of what a church is, we very clearly in this video get the perspective that a church is a place that you go on a Sunday morning, afternoon, or evening, depending on the service times, and you just kind of participate once a week. And as we discovered last week, the, the Bible, the scriptures actually describe that the church, as we think about it, we're to think about it as a family. And the reason that the church is to be a family is because we believe that God is our father and that God the father adopts us as his children, which then means that we are the family. And so if you've ever heard a Christian say, hey, brother, this, or hey, sister, this, that's not just insider. It is somewhat insider church lingo. But the point being is that we relate to to one another as we are brothers and sisters because we share a father, our big brother Jesus, and we're part of a family. And so the way that we do life together is not enough to just say, well, we'll see you next week for an hour and a half. It's, it's to actually say, what would it look like for us to live our lives engaged with one another as a family? 
Now this week we're continuing and we're talking about the second aspect of what is church. And we're answering that today uh, by talking that the church is a group of people on mission. Now as it relates to that, I wanted to share a few stats with you. And a couple of books I've read over the last few weeks have been extremely helpful in giving us a really accurate perspective of how culture at large views Christian people. So if you consider yourself a Christian person and are not aware of the ways that culture views you, I would encourage you to check out some of these resources, but at the same time, get outside of maybe your bubble that you're in and realize what's going on in the world around us. Uh, For example, we we talked about the book Good Faith last week, and this is what um, a whole bunch of people that are not Christians uh, perceive about evangelicals. They write this, evangelicals' fundamental belief in the importance of sharing the gospel or the good news of Jesus, as we talk about here, is seen as extreme by a majority of adults in a society trying to come to grips with religious diversity. But as they go on to talk about, it's not only evangelicals that are under this impression, it's faith groups in many different ways, lots of different faith communities. But it is Christians who are the most likely to feel tension that could prevent a conversation with people who are different from them. And many of us would agree with this. If you think about how would I have a conversation with somebody that doesn't believe the same things that I do or doesn't have the same worldview as me. And people on every end of the political spectrum and in the faith spectrum are actually struggling with the same thing. How do I have a relationship with somebody who doesn't believe the same things with me? And the way Facebook has their algorithms, you actually aren't hearing from a lot of people that actually don't have similar perspectives as you. It's quite interesting. A bit closer to home, uh, in Mark Clark's book, The Problem of God, he writes this about the particular Canadian society. He said, Many find it extremely offensive to claim there is only one way to God. A recent article in Canada's Maclean's magazine entitled, How Canadian Are You?, claimed, for instance, that more than 30% of Canadians were most uncomfortable around evangelical Christians, a similar percentage as other top untouchables like drug addicts and child abusers. The reason? Primarily because Christians are viewed as narrow-minded bigots who believe that the way, their way is the only right way when it comes to salvation. Now, some of us are sitting here like, great! So good to know. Now, in response to this, a couple of things, okay? The, the, the founder of our faith, Jesus Christ, was killed for what he taught, Right? Um, so it makes sense that some of the perspectives of Christians in our society would be seen as being counter to our particular culture. So that'd be one thing I'd say. In defense, though, I would say that every person in our culture, and I touched on this a little bit last week, represents a faith perspective. And every single person that you're going to come in contact with is going to try to convert you to their perspective. I mean, we all make uh, philosophical or metaphysical uh, statements all of the time. When it, sometimes when it relates to death, sometimes as it relates to the topics of love, we all make these statements. And you can especially tell if somebody's trying to convert you on something based on the things that they talk about. Uh, most uh, people would, for example, want to convert you to a television show that they're watching. Oh, you've got to check out this. So everybody is out there, if we're going to be honest, everybody is out there to convert you to something. Uh, but... By and large, Christians are the ones that are attacked that you're trying to convert to this. I'd highly recommend you check out Mark's book as it relates to the defense of Christianity in the marketplace of ideas that are out there. But I would say that that is a way that that you can defend yourself in saying, well, everybody out there has a faith perspective and everybody is trying to get you to see their perspective as valid. 
All of that said, Christians need to be humble in saying that, yes, the way that we have approached things historically has not been helpful. And so I would say that as we think about how we engage culture, we need to be thoughtful, we need to be tactful, and we need to be respectful of people. Why? Well, as Christians believe, every person is made in the image of God, so therefore we should treat everybody as they're made in the image of God. We should see the good in them and therefore engage in conversations in a helpful way. That sound fair? There's our introduction. Let's jump in. Matthew read for us Genesis 12, verses 1 to 9. So if you have your Bibles, let's go back there. We are going to go through this line by line. And you might be saying, what does Genesis 12, verses 1 to 9, have anything to do with what is church? And if that is you, I'm glad. Uh, Hopefully you'll pay attention over the next 30 or so minutes as we engage. Now, Genesis 12, as as you're probably aware, if you had your Bible open, or maybe you know a little bit about the Genesis storyline, it's very close to the beginning of the whole story, right? It's, it's right pretty much at the very beginning. And prior to this, we have the creation narratives in chapters 1 and 2. Then in uh, chapter 3, we, we learn about why things, are the way, why things are the way they are from the perspective of why things are as bad as the way they are, why the fall happened, why there's suffering in the world. Christianity has an answer for why there is bad, why there is evil, why there is suffering, just as every worldview has a perspective of why that is. You can find out about that in Genesis 3. And then in chapters 4 to 11, we, ha- we see the implications of what a broken world looks like. We see people killing. We see a world that has gone to a terrible place of not honoring and loving God. We have the story of Noah and the ark, which you've maybe heard of before. Then we have a story of a group of people that based upon a recent technology, try to make a name for themselves. And God says, no, you're not to make a name for yourselves. And then in chapter 12, God seems to enter the picture again with a man named Abram. So this is where we start and we'll go through it a little bit line by line and try to get some details as then we can apply later on. So verse one of chapter Chapter 12, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram. Now, for those of us that come to this text with an understanding of who the Lord is, it's very well. But some of us approach this and we're like, who is the Lord? Who who is this person suddenly appearing to Abram or saying to Abram? In Hebrew, which is the original language this was written in, it is the one who possesses and exercises power and authority and to whom respect is to be submitted to. Or in other words, it's also Yahweh, the proper name for God, the God of Israel. As you talk about the God in the Old Testament, you can actually best refer to him as his name that he's referred to constantly through Old Testament, which is Yahweh. So this is the Lord. Now, when was the last time that that Yahweh, the Lord, appeared on the scene? And it's actually back, so if you go down back to the the end of chapter, or the middle section of chapter 11, we see that the Lord disperses after the Tower of Babel. People are trying to make a name for themselves. God disperses them because he gives them different language, and they disperse across the whole earth. Now, there's a little bit of time between the end of the Tower of Babel and then the beginning of chapter 12. So in many ways, it would seem, as we're not led to understand, that God is really present, it would seem. And then suddenly here, at the beginning of chapter 12, we're introduced to the Lord again. He's back on the scene. He's back in the picture. We know that, as we think about it theologically, that he hasn't disappeared, but he's not necessarily present and current as it would seem. Now, the Lord said to Abram, well, how did he speak? Uh, We're to understand it's divine speech. We're not necessarily told how, just that he spoke to Abram. Next question is, who is Abram? 
right? Like there's all of these things that we sort of assume as we come to it. And some of us are like, oh, I've heard this story before. Let's go back. Who is Abram? So chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, we find out who this man Abram is. This is what we read. Now, these are the generations of Terah. So can everyone say Terah? Terah fathered Abram. So who is Abram? Abram is the son of Terah. Uh, Terah also fathered Nahor and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. So we're being introduced to a family here. There's Terah. He has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran had a son named Lot, the grandson of Terah. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. Excellent. The name of Sarah's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was barren. She had no child. So we're introduced to this family. We have Terah. We have three sons. One of the sons tragically dies. We have Abram, and we have the other son. And then we have a grandson named Lot. We're told that Abram marries Sarah. We're told that Nahor marries Milcah. And we're also told that Sarah is barren. This is going to become important detail as we go on in the story. So this is what God says to this man named Abram. So God didn't talk to Terah. God didn't talk to Nahor. God specifically chose to speak to Abram. What does he say to him? He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So God shows up on the scene, which would seem out of the blue, speaks to Abram, son of Terah, uncle of Lot, and says, go from your country. Now, what's the next detail? Well, what country is he in? Well, verses 31 and 32 of chapter 11, uh, verse 31 and 32 in chapter 11 tell us, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran. So he takes Abram and his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So you can see this is a story of a family that intended to set out to go to Canaan. They stop in Haran. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So I have a map here of where all these things took place. So you can see down in the, the right, we have Ur of the Chaldeans. We read that they set out to go to Canaan, which is over here on the far left. But they settle in a place called Haran. So they go from Ur of the Chaldeans, which was an ancient city in South Babylonia, it remains in current modern-day Iraq. Archaeologically, it tells, we are told that there was a developed culture here around 2000 BC. And then they traveled to Haran with intentions to go to, Haran, to, go to Canaan. Haran itself was in north, in north Mesopotamia, which is now in modern Turkey. So what are we told? He's to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Now, the question is, this seems like a fairly large request of the Lord, right? He's telling him to go, one, from your country and to leave your father's house and your land. Now, in this culture, as maybe you could imagine, family and country was your identity, right? This is a highly patriarchal society. As we read the history of the family, we can imagine that. It's like Terah had these kids. And so God is telling Abram, He's saying, I want you to leave the identity that is your family, and I want to leave your possession, which is your land. It's no small request, right? And Abram, think about it, could at this point have been like, who are you, Lord? 
Because we're not told if Terah has been super, uh, super a follower of Yahweh or the way. But suddenly Abram is expected to leave his kindred, and we're told that he's going to go to the land that God would show him. So to obey, Abram must obey God implicitly. All human support is completely removed. Therefore, for Abram, this is a complete step of faith. Right? The Lord shows up. Divine speech. I want you to go. I want you to leave everything that is culturally thought of as your identity. So I want you to think about this for yourselves. What are the things that you find your identity in? You know, for some of us, it could be family. It could be, well, for parents, one thing that we can struggle with is my identity is my children. My identity is maybe in the stuff that I have, the home that I own. My identity is in the values that matter to me. My identity is the schooling that I'm doing. My identity is the friends that I have. God is saying, Abram, in order for you to leave, it's not just like relocate, we're going to go off. It's like, no, you've got to trust me, and I'm going to take you to a place, but I'm just going to show you. I'm not going to specify it for you. This is a crazy call. But then what does he promise him? Well, God says in verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. God's purpose is to make Abram, if we haven't already understood, a great nation, which as you again, again, remember, you got to think about it. We are told that Sarah is barren. So how is a great nation going to happen if my wife, I'm 75, she's not able to have kids? Right? So you got to think, it's like he's like kind of mulling this over with the Lord, as some of us do with the Lord. It's like, you really, want me, you really want me to like leave my family, leave the land? Maybe you didn't know, but my wife can't have children. We can't have children. How are we going to have a great nation? You know, that would probably be enough for many of us to just say, I'm not going. God didn't know about my wife. Right? But it's an enormous step of faith. But what is Yahweh doing here? God is desiring through Abram to establish a new humanity, a new kingdom, and a new culture. God is saying, I'm not giving up on the human race, even though over the last 3 to 11 chapters, you have royally screwed it up. I'm going to still pursue you. I'm going to love you, and I want a new culture, and I want a new kingdom created. He then says, Lord says, and just notice how many times bless is said. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now notice, this, this stands in huge contrast to chapter 11, which is the story of the Tower of Babel, which is people wanting to get blessing for themselves. And here in chapter 12, Abram says, I'm going to bless you, and then people will be blessed. Not you go figure out how you're going to be a blessing and then go do it. He's saying, no, I will bless you, and through my blessing, you will therefore be a blessing to other people. You don't have to go searching for the blessing yourself. Lean into what I am going to provide for you. And notice what he says, in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now once again, go reverse, the thinking his perspective. Okay, here's suddenly, the Lord is suddenly speaking to me. My wife's barren, leave all identity. Again, my wife's barren, I'm going to be a nation. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through me and my barren wife. What are you talking about? Right? Has God ever called you to do something just ridiculous? And you're like, how is that going to work? You identify with Abram. 
right? This is the story that many of us understand. But Abram has promised that he was going to be a blessing. He's not told the how. He's just asked to go and do. So how does Abram respond? How would you respond? This is how Abram responds. So Abram went. He went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Get this, Lot's even in on it, right? Uncle Abram, if the Lord spoke to you, I want to be part of that too, right? Maybe this is like the first point of like just affirmation for Abram. Like, you're not just going to go, you and Sarah and your servants and things, but Lot, your nephew, he's going to go with you too. So they set off. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Do we have any 75-year-olds in here? There we go. Yes, excellent. Welcome. And okay, so you guys are in the perfect situation. Imagine this, right? I'm going to make it a nation through you. My wife's barren, God. Don't worry about that. I'm 75. Don't worry about that. Abram goes. He was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took his, Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered. Like, this is a caravan. And the people, not, not the Dodge caravan, this is a caravan of groups of people. And the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Remember, this is, there's no minivans here yet. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So let's go to our map, right? He was initially in Ur of the Chaldeans, goes to Haran, then comes down to Canaan. And there's a whole nation of Canaanites dwelling in Canaan. And God says, hey, to you and your barren wife, you 75-year-old you, I'm going to give this entire already inhabited land. Okay, God. <laughs> like, okay, let's do that. So he built there an altar. The best way to respond, I'd imagine. He built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Because he's probably like, Are you, you've got to be kidding me. What is going on? And Abram journeyed on, still going toward Negeb. So Abram has left his security. Abram has left his identity. And he has said, I will go because you promise that this is going to be the case. So the question for you and me naturally to apply is will you step out in faith? Now for some of us in this room, it's like, I don't believe the Christian way. I do not believe the Christian perspective. That worldview is bogus. Would you step out in faith and explore it? Simply explore it. Look at resources like the problem of God, build a relationship with a person that's a follower of Jesus, and ask them tons of questions. For you, it might be you've just recently decided that you want to become a follower of Jesus and I ask you the question, what is the first step of faith that God is asking you? Is it to give up an identity? Is it to give up a security? Is it to give up a relationship so that you can more faithfully follow the way of Jesus? Or maybe for you, you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, but you, if you're honest with yourself, you've been ineffective. And, and I don't mean ineffective in the way of like you're not a good person. I just simply mean that the way that you're following Jesus, nobody can tell around you that you follow a different way. That the cost of discipleship has not really been weighing upon your life. And so you're sort of asking the question like, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And so I would just encourage you to take the next step of faith. Or maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you would say, I am following the way of Jesus. There's always next steps of faith, right? Like when you're 75, you could get something like this. God's not done with you till you're gone, Right? There's always something more. <laughs> you might be going, 
Okay, neat, neat talk. What does this have to do with who the church is? Right? As we did last week. And I just want to point out to us what I think is an extremely powerful contrast to Jesus' words to his disciples before he leaves earth. He says this in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. If you have your Bibles, go with me there. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's saying, I have the authority of Yahweh. The power, the authority, do his name. Go, therefore, and make disciples, apprentices, learners. We'll talk more about that next week. Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now notice, we went from here, very beginning, all the way to here. Guess what? The call hasn't changed. You see that? Let's notice first a couple of the similarities. Go to unspecified nations. Right? What did God, what did God say to Abram? He said, I want you to go to a nation that I'm just going to show you. Okay, God, but which one? I don't know. I'm not going to tell you yet. I do actually know. Sorry. I do know, but I'm not going to tell you yet because I want you to step out in faith first. What does Jesus say here? Go and make disciples of all nations. Which ones? Well, sort of all nations. Yeah, but which one for me? Listen to me. Step out in faith. I'll show you. He then says, you don't, you don't go alone. Go to unspecified nations, but you're going to be empowered by God's authority and presence. Remember when God's called to Abram? Go out. I will bless you. I will be with you. Here, I'm going to be with you too. What are we to do as we go empowered by God's authority and presence? We're to go with the purpose of being a blessing, showing God's favor, favor and establishing a new humanity. Go and make disciples. Bring them into your community. Bring them into to your experience of what it's going to be as a nation. Why? So that others may be blessed and become disciples who will then go and actually repeat the process. So the goal is not simply go and gather a crowd. The goal is to go and make disciples, people that understand this new humanity and then live in light of this new humanity and then represent that humanity to the watching world. And through you, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And if we understand that promised Abram, we also see that that promise was not just through your lineage, which will be the case, but also eventually will come Jesus from this lineage who will bless the world through salvation. Do you see what God's done? Isn't that incredible? I love it. Now, you might ask the question, okay, lovely, <laughs> but why? Why is it the way that it is? Why should I even think about Jesus' teaching here? Why should I listen to his call? Why should I listen to this commission? What is the foundational purpose other than I could be Abram or I could be one of these guys? And the reason is, and this is what the Christian, especially in light of what we, what we read about in good faith of like our culture not liking that, or um, what we read about in McLean's magazine, that there's going to be ob an obvious tension. Like, I don't want to be part of that, but why would we? Well, number one, Let's remember that this is what God does. And God does not change. He is a missionary God. 
This is, when we, when we as Christians say that we, we follow the way of Jesus, when we say we, we are Christians of this way, or when we follow God, please hear me. This God in character is a missionary God who pursues his people constantly. Some people's stories, if we were to listen to everybody's stories, I mean, Jay's story even from this morning, as you think about it, is like God was continued to pursue her. This is what a missionary God does. He pursues people. And we see this most profoundly because the way that we're to understand Father God is through looking at Jesus. Jesus says this himself. You cannot know the Father unless you know me. And we read this in Mark 1, verse 14 to 15, when he came to earth, that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Notice there it says, Jesus came into Galilee. It wasn't wasn't like he set up shop and like send out mailers. (laughs) He went to reach the culture with the good news of himself. It's the way he did it. Luke 19, verse 10 says, The Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. Therefore, if we serve a God who this is his identity, if this is his desire, if this is his calling to you and to me, we live in light of that by doing what he does by seeking and saving that which is lost. Why? As we'll get to it, because we were once the lost ones. So one, this is who our God is, but then two, this is what we are to do because this is how God made us. One of the most foundational teachings of the Christian faith is that human beings are made in the image of God. It's what makes you and I different from every other created thing. Case in point, you might have Seabiscuit, the horse, not the Seabiscuit anymore, But if, you know, finances got tight, you were a family that owned a really, really expensive horse, and you had a family member that wasn't contributing very much, but the horse was contributing more, you would not say, well, we ought to get rid of the person before we get rid of the horse. Now, against a culture of naturalism, evolution, the survival of the fittest, like, I mean, the horse is stronger than the human. But Christianity rails against that and says, no, Human beings are made in the image of God. We are distinctly different than the rest of the created order. As, as many folks talk about the similarities between the DNA strands of ourselves and, and, um, and apes, apes are not sitting around having philosophical conversations about the nature of life. They're trying to survive but they're not asking questions of why are we asking the questions of why we should survive. Human beings do ask those questions. We are made in his image. Genesis 1 verse 26 says, God said, let us, us being the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image after our likeness. You and I share the likeness and the image of the creator. So therefore, if we are created in the image of a missionary God, we are therefore a missionary people. And we are tasked with the purpose of doing what God does. Notice this is our commission and call in Genesis 1, verse 28 to 30. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has been the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. 
See what God does? He creates and then partners with us in taking the world somewhere. He says, harness the raw materials of the planet and make something beautiful. Establish a new humanity. Show the world what I am like through what I have done in you. And the interesting thing and the caveat is that even when things go incredibly bad for God's people, he doesn't say, okay, you're in a bad situation. Don't worry about that whole culture changing thing. In Jeremiah 29 verse 11, when God's people are in exile, when many of their nation has been wiped out, and now they're living under foreign rule and reign. And we can think about even of our own perspective as followers of Jesus in a, in, a, in a country of exile. This is what Jeremiah says to the people. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for it's in its welfare you will find your welfare. See what's going on here? You and I are to seek the welfare of the city of Guelph where we have been sent into exile as God's people. We're to pray to the Lord on the city of Guelph's behalf for in the city of Guelph's welfare, you will find your welfare. We're to establish a new humanity. We're to show people a different way. Why? Because you and I have been sought by Father God and saved the person and work of Jesus Christ so that we could be brought into the family and we could go and share the same thing with others. And when you recognize the blessing that has been on your life, you go and you bless. Right? Like if I were to come up to you today and be like, here's a million bucks, you'd probably feel a little bit awkward. At one point you'd be like, whoa, a million, where do you get a million from? I have no idea. But I'm giving you a million bucks and I'd say, now go and bless others. You'd, you'd be incredibly selfish not to give any of that money away. Right? And the great news of Christianity is that we've been given blessings upon blessings upon blessings of life both now and eternally. And so therefore, if we understand the value and the blessing of that gift, we then can go and bless other people because of what we've experienced inside of us and externally as well. So what are the implications how do we apply this? Well, one, I would say go, step out in faith. And you might be going, well, how? Pray. If you're a skeptic, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would, as I said earlier, challenge you to ask the tough questions. Begin to explore different worldviews. Ask if Christianity holds up to other worldviews that are out there. We'd love to journey with you, welcome you at our tables and have those conversations. We're all about that here. At least I hope we're all about that here. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it's, it's saying, God, may I trust you, may I know that you have good things in the future. And even though I don't know how that future, which you've told me about, is going to make sense, I'm going to step out. Because sometimes the hardest thing is just to step out your door and go, go across the street. God, I don't know what awaits me there. That's okay. Abram didn't know where he was going. <laughs> just step out and go. Two, second implication, is to be a blessing as you have been blessed. I love what God says to Abram. He says, I want you to go and make you a great nation. And what I pointed out is that God's desire is that he would go out and he would establish a new humanity. 
Uh, many of you in this room know that I love the resource The Bible Project. Uh, it's a YouTube channel, and uh, incredible animators have created videos about thematic things in the Bible. They've gone through every single book of the Bible and laid out in animated form every book of the Bible described in, ev in every way, like its literary features, themes that are standing out. And one of their videos, uh, it's about heaven and earth. And so we, I have some slides just to show us what is meant by this new humanity or what is meant by this heaven and earth reality. And in the beginning, we, we see in the very beginning of the Bible that, that heaven and earth are completely overlapped. There's no separation between heaven and earth. God is with his people. People are with their God. There's no sin and there's no brokenness. But as soon as the fall happens, Genesis 3, we then have the separation of what is heaven and earth. And so you can see that here. On the left, we have heaven. We have the kingdom of God. We have eternal life. On the right, we have the world. We have the present age. We have the age of sin and death. And many of us, before we come to know Jesus, all of us become before we know Jesus, we we're wrapped up in this. We're wrapped up in the world. We're wrapped up in sin and injustice and ugliness, where on the other side, the experience of heaven is God's presence, his justice, his beauty, and his goodness. And the story of the scriptures is how do we bring these two worlds back together? How do we overlap them? And this is how it's done. Through Jesus, we have access back to the kingdom of God. And so the focus, as they're trying to describe here in illustrated form, is that we are to be living in the middle of the dark age and the future age, the overlap of heaven and earth, that the kingdom of God is here. That it's not a future thing, but it can be a here thing, but we still live in this already and not yet reality. If you go back to the last screen, please, again. So we're not the people that just sit on the outside solely on our hands and knees praying. Right? Some of us, if we're honest as followers of Jesus, which isn't really following Jesus, is taking an external posture of I'll just sit over here and pray and hope that the world just works itself out. No, the calling of followers of Jesus is to go into the center, the overlap of heaven and earth. And as we see in the next slide, this is what it means. I hope this has been helpful in illustrating what this new humanity is all about. What does it look like to live as followers of Jesus here in Guelph, representing this new humanity, this new reality of the kingdom of God, which Jesus talks about constantly? He constantly is talking about the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. And we'll talk more about some of the realities of how we do that. And then as we be a blessing, as we've been blessed, we, we be the church. So what is the church? And this has been our background slide for the entire series is this. The church is therefore a group of people where you don't come in, but you are sent out to use time, money, energy, our schedules, and resources to bless the world. To say, this is what it means to be part of God's family. This is what it means to be part of the new humanity. This is what God's been doing since the very beginning, and he's continuing to do in and through us now into the future. It's the most amazing thing that God allows us to partner with him in. The church is the people that goes. Money, time, energy, resources. Why? Because Jesus gave us everything so that we can therefore go and follow his example. And lastly, this all sounds probably quite daunting. But notice what Jesus says. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to serve all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so we live with an outward posture empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
that if you're like, I can't do this, good. If that's how you feel, I can't do that, good. That's why Jesus came to show that you couldn't. And so you need him to empower you through the Holy Spirit to send you out. Because if you build religiosity on what you do, you're just going to compare yourself constantly to the other people who don't measure up. But if at the same time you look at other people and are like, you're not doing this, you could also just take a defeatist mentality of like, well, I'm not even going to try. And Christians are those that live between the overlap of heaven and earth, recognizing the brokenness of the world that we still live in, but recognizing that there is a new humanity and that we are representatives of that. And we live in that tension, waiting for the day when Jesus will return and heaven and earth will be completely overlapped. Justice will be done. Sin and brokenness will be done forever. And we are living in the perfect presence of our Father God forever. Amen. We would love to invite you that if we can pray for you, if we can come alongside you in prayer, if you have a physical ailment that we can pray for you to, that you would be healed, if you have a word from the Holy Spirit that is just saying, this is a word that, that I need impressed upon this community at this time, please come and speak with me. We would love to journey with you in that. I want to invite the band to come up. But let's create an atmosphere, let's create a space of the overlap of heaven and earth. You know, you know our vision here at Church of the City is in Guelph as it is in heaven. And the reason we can vision that, the reason we can talk about that is because we believe in this overlap. We believe in this heaven and earth reality. And so let us praise God, understanding what he has done and what he is doing in and through us as we go and be a blessing so that the nation, so the families of the earth will be blessed in and through his work in our lives and in the lives of those around us.